Welcome to F3. I'm Craig Fuller. We're really excited to have you virtually. We'd love to be in person, but unfortunately, that's not possible this year. So we're going to have a virtual conversation. I'm here with Guy Raz, uh, with the host of the podcast, How I Built This. We're going to talk about entrepreneurship and dive into the journey. A lot of entrepreneurship in supply chain and logistics these days. It is an industry that is growing substantially. Guy, you've talked to a lot of founders of all sorts of businesses. I'd love to talk about what that journey looks like for a founder. What is the stuff that when you're when you're meeting founders and you invite them on the show, what is the thing that you typically are looking for uh, as you as you talk to them about their journey? You know, Craig, and I think you'll you'll be able to relate to this. Um, a the the story of founding a business is one of the most dramatic stories that you can tell. Now, it might sound a little weird to say that, right? Because when you're thinking of a drama, you think of, you know, like uh, like like Star Wars. But but what I recognized in founders' stories about 15 years ago, and it really started 15 years ago, even though I, I only started the show six, was when I read about founders, I saw the outlines of a hero's journey. There's a famous writer named Joseph Campbell who codified the idea of a hero's journey back in the 60s. And his basic, basic idea was that every great story has a similar narrative arc, right? Every epic, whether it's Gilgamesh or, or Star Wars or uh, the Odyssey or the Bible, um, there's, there's a hero. And she uh, is in a small village and has a crazy idea. And the villagers uh, tell her she's crazy. So she has to leave the village to fulfill her dream. And she leaves the village and she seeks out a mentor and uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi, whoever it might be, the mentor dies. Um, she finds she has to go through a series of trials, whether it's slaying a dragon, falling into an abyss, uh, near-death experience, emerging from the crucible and then returning triumphantly to the village. Now, not every founder's story has all of those elements, but every story has many of those elements. As you know, building a business is it includes incredible triumph and joy and incredible depths and, and low points and setbacks and moments when you think it's all going to collapse. And when I when I started to see those patterns in business stories, it became in founding stories, it became clear to me that I could tell those stories in a really dramatic way because they're real, you know, and 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 so that was really the crux of how I, I began to think about the show and how we think about the show today. They are essentially versions of heroes' journeys. And one of the reasons why I think they're so powerful and resonant is because we can all relate to that person. You know, whether I'm talking to you or if I'm interviewing Richard Branson or Howard Schultz or the best-known entrepreneurs on earth who have been on the show, we hear them before people would take their call. And we begin to see and understand all of the challenges they faced, which if we are entrepreneurs ourselves, or even if we're just trying to build something, anything creatively, we begin to relate to that person's experience. It becomes so relatable that you connect with the story and the person and the mistakes they made and the lessons that you learn through their journey. And that's really the what I'm trying to do with the show. Is part of it, you know, the hero's journey, this or this myth of, of heroic, there's a part of it that oftentimes these are flawed characters that the, the story is that, you know, in the early days they were sort of flawed and, and sort of 
had, you know, some substantial challenges and then sort of overcome this. And as an audience, we're sort of rooting for them. Yeah. Uh, but is that, I mean, it seems like listening to your podcast and, and knowing founders being my, uh, being one myself, we're all flawed in some ways. And we sort of have this desire to, to overcome those or sort of prove that it's not going to define us. We are all flawed. And that's actually a, such an important point because I think we're living in a world right now, especially now, where we expect everybody to be perfect. And we expect everybody to have always been perfect. And the reality is that we are all flawed. Even the even Mother Teresa, even the most saintly people you can think of, we have flaws. We need to hear about those flaws. We need to understand them. We need to understand people's vulnerabilities because it 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 makes us understand our own flaws and it makes us accept that we can overcome them. You know, I think about, I mean, one of my, uh, you know, one of my, my, my favorite stories uh, that I've told on the show uh, is, is a story of, um, uh, you know, one of the, the famous shoe brand. Um, I don't know why I'm, I'm blanking on the name now. Um, uh, Steve Madden, forgive me, Steve Madden. <laughs> Steve Madden was... Uh, you know, he learned how to make shoes. He was a cobbler. He he grew up in Long Island working at shoe stores and he learned how to make shoes. And eventually he started a, a business. Uh, at a certain point in his career, he he became, uh, as he describes, very greedy and um, and basically committed securities fraud and went to jail for it. Now, you could, that could be the end of the story, right? That, that could be the end of his story. But actually, that was the beginning of his journey. That was really a, a transformational time in his life where he was able to reflect on all of his flaws and all of the mistakes he made. And he actually came out of jail much more self-reflective, much more open, and a much better businessman who, who was then able to scale the company to even greater heights. And I love those stories because as I say, we are all flawed in different ways. We may not, hopefully, don't all go to jail for securities fraud. <laughs> but, you know, the, the point is, is that, um, you know, many of the people I interview are not well-educated. They didn't go to the fanciest schools. They didn't have a whole lot of connections. They didn't know where to begin. And they made a lot of mistakes along the way. And that's key and crucial for, for anyone who wants to start a business to understand that, that part of the journey, imprinted in the journey, embedded in the journey, is failure. Failure is part of the journey. And when you begin to understand that, then you begin to understand that you can actually see a horizon despite all the obstacles ahead of, that are right in front of you. Yeah, we, we've had Jordan, speaking of Steve Madden, we've had Jordan Belfort uh, a few times on Freightways yeah. TV and at our conferences Right. Uh, a flawed character, but one who's sort of risen from the ashes, yeah. if you will, and created a whole brand around uh, what most would assume was a was a flawed character, and sort of has owned that and turned that into a very successful business. Um, when I think about the journey that founders take, uh, it is often there's a lot of doubt, there's a lot of uh, disbelief. Is there something about a founder? I feel like if my own journey and and talking to other founders. If you had the great job and you were doing really well and working for Goldman Sachs, making millions a year, you you wouldn't go out and start a business. Um, for me, if I my dad fired me, so if I'd stayed working for my father, I would likely be working for my father. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting because these, but it I think it takes the 
the type of person that wants to start a business is one that has to fight a little harder. Do you see that as a common trait? Yeah, and, among and founders? 100%. And, and to your Goldman Sachs story, I mean, there's a story I told on the show about Jim Cook, who founded Boston Beer Company, um, uh, famously best known for, for Sam Adams and now all of its other lines of, of, of beverages. Um, alcohol, uh, you know, he was a, on, on the fast track to partnership at the Boston Consulting Group when he left to start a craft beer company in the early 1980s when nobody drank American beer. American beer was the laughingstock of the beer market. In, in Europe, they, they wouldn't, they would never drink American. Today, American craft beer is the envy of the world. It is it win the, American craft beers win awards all over the world. But Jim Cook really started that. He was one of the, the pioneers who started that, um, you know, that that movement. And what he told me was that, and it, it's a little bit similar to. There's a famous um, essay by Jeff Bezos about sort of the the regret, you know, this idea of regret and and making decisions based on on the regret that you might have for not doing that, for not taking the risk. And Jim Cook made that calculation. He said, am I, I, I am on the fast track to making partner. And, uh, you know, it's a good job. It's stable and steady. But in my heart and soul, there's a burning passion to create something, to put something out into the world. And for him, it was craft beer. This was the thing that was just... It was an itch he just had to scratch. It was the thing that kept him up at night. And like time and again, you find that with founders. There's an idea they have, and it may not be the idea that will ultimately succeed or that they ultimately pursue, but there's an idea that they start with and they can't shake it. Now, what is it that connects all of them? Why did you do what you do? Why did Howard Schultz do what he did? Why, you know, why did Ben Chestnut of MailChimp do what he did? Why did, you know, Don Katz build Audible? There's a reason why. There's something that connects every single entrepreneur, whether it's Sarah Blakely or Fawn Weaver, who started Uncle Nearest in, in Tennessee, the great whiskey distillery and brand. And what that is, is a willingness to accept rejection and failure and no. Now, all of us, I, all of us are hardwired to avoid rejection. We don't like it. And I think part of that is because as a species, it was a survival mechanism. You know, you, you avoided, uh, you know, danger, which is rejection, and that's how you survived. Well, in the modern age, you have to be willing to accept rejection to actually advance and move forward. And one of the things that I've noticed across the board with every single entrepreneur I've had on the show is they either have the ability to withstand rejection or they've developed it. Many of them started out as sales reps. I think of one of the best examples is um, a guy I interviewed named Tope Owatana who started the app called Calendly. And you, you may use Calendly. I, probably lots of people use it watching. And Tope actually, when he was a college student, he was a, a Nigerian. He was an immigrant from Nigeria. His parents came, his family came to, to the U.S. when he was 15. He went to the University of Georgia when he was a student at the University of Georgia, he got a job selling alarm systems for ADT. And he would go door to door in Athens, Georgia, knock on doors, trying to sell alarm systems. And when I asked him, how did you deal with all those doors being slammed in your face? You know, because you're going to get a lot of that. What he said to me was really stuck with me. He said, I didn't care because I knew that the hit rate, there was a hit rate. And once I figured out what that hit rate was, which for him was like one in 120 doors, he said, it didn't matter because once I made a sale, I made more commission on that sale than I could make 
you know, in, in, in three weeks or four weeks in any job. And so he developed this ability to hear no, to hear those doors slammed in his face. It's the same story with Sarah Blakely at Spanx. You know, she was selling fax machines door to door. So when it came time for them to start their businesses, and I'm sure you can relate to this, they were used to hearing no. How many times did you go to investors who said, yeah, you know, this idea of a logistics media company, I don't see it. You know, uh, not, how many times did you hear people say that to you? How many times? Over a hundred. Right? How many times did people say to you, I don't really get what you're doing? Now, you, in any other circumstance, as a, as a human being with a survival mechanism encoded in you, your instinct would, would be to say, you're right. You know, no one has thought about this, so maybe it really isn't an idea. And then you would walk away. But you understood that rejection and hearing no was part of the process, that it didn't matter if 10 or 20 or 100 people said, Craig, it's not going to work because you understood, you knew that it was going to work. You could see it clearly and you continued to pursue it. But that's because you built the ability to withstand the no's and to withstand the rejections. That is a key trait and a key skill that each and every entrepreneur I've interviewed has either was either born with, which are the minority, or developed, which is the majority of them. It's interesting because I, I wonder for, for those founders that are out there that are in the earliest parts of their journey of how do they know from what you've seen in terms of all the folks you've talked to, how do they know when the idea that, that they're going to eventually achieve success with? is the idea that they're currently working on. I, I spent, for myself, I spent 10 years in an idea that wasn't great, that I just stayed because I was committed to making it happen. Whereas if I had moved in, had done something else, that I would have got that time back. But I wonder, how, do you, how does a founder become convinced that this is an idea worth sticking it out? And this is an idea that is worth shelving? Because it, it feels like, that is the most important decision that a founder can make is which ideas do they pour their energy into? And the other, and so the, the short answer is we don't know. We never know fully. Part of it is judgment. Part of it is looking at, at, at trends. And part of it is, um, uh, is, is listening to others, but also listening to yourself. You know, James Dyson, when he was working on the Dyson vacuum cleaner, it took him eight years. He, he made... 5,714 prototypes of that vacuum cleaner. Everyone around him told him he was crazy. Who, you know, why are you working on this project for eight years? You're not, he, he wasn't employed. He was doing some consulting work here and there, but he wasn't bringing in an income. But he was obsessed with the idea of building a bagless vacuum cleaner. And he pursued this uh, despite hearing people tell him that no one would buy it. And even once he invented it and created it, he couldn't convince Hoover vacuum cleaners uh, the biggest vacuum manufacturer in the UK at the time, to license it and to make it. They didn't want to make it. They weren't interested. They made their money off bags, not off a bagless vacuum cleaner. And he, he eventually found a bank loan to manufacture them himself in small quantities and convinced a medium retail chain in Britain, John Lewis, to sell them. Well, within a year, uh, they started to sell. And within two years, it became the biggest, the best-selling vacuum cleaner in the United Kingdom. So... Sometimes, even when everybody tells you you're wrong, they're wrong and you're right. But sometimes when everybody tells you maybe you should pivot or, or maybe when the product isn't actually finding a market, you, you, you can see the signs around you. So one of my favorite examples is Ring, doorbells. I mean, Jamie Siminoff, who founded Ring, had 
tons of different business ideas that he was pursuing, including um, a modular garden idea where you would basically um, you'd get like a, a square, uh, like a tile and you could build, you could just plant and it would grow like tomatoes. And then you could have another tile that would grow cucumbers and it, you could have like a tiled floor growing different things around the house. And he really pursued this for a while. He pursued social media ideas. He in fact had a company uh, around uh, social media and, and telephony. He was really tinkering with what would become the ring as a problem that he had because he was working in his garage and he would never hear the doorbell. And he had a, you know, he, he, he was a, just a tinkerer. He could build things and he basically rigged up a, a, a doorbell that was connected to a video camera. And, and literally a friend of his one day said, that's really cool. You should make that. I mean, that was five years or four years before he, he committed to pursuing that idea. You know, it would take him some time. So sometimes we can't see it ourselves. It takes other people to, to tell us. And sometimes other people are not telling us the right information. The only real way to know is, is to, to, to just kind of trust your instincts. And oftentimes, and I'm sure you've experienced this, it requires you to really cast a wide net and, and ask a lot of people for their opinions and their feedback. Much of that feedback will not be helpful. Some of that feedback will be plain wrong, but some of it may be right. And some of it may actually inspire you to make a very slight pivot and adjustment to pursue something else. You know, we, we just, I just interviewed Ben Chestnut of MailChimp and he's, he's in your neck of the woods in Atlanta. He was on the show about six months ago. And, you know, that company began as a, as a web design company. That was their bread and butter. That's how they made money. Um, email marketing was not, a business that made them any money. They, they were making $20,000, $30,000 a project doing web design and five to $10 from a customer for email marketing. But in 2009, they really had to pivot and make a decision and drop the web design business, which was 85% of their business, 90% of the business, and basically make a hard pivot towards email marketing, which we know the story they sold for $15 billion. It's insane amount of money. Uh, and, and he owned it, right? I mean, he, he bootstrapped it with his, with his co-founder. So that was a very hard decision to make because that they were all of a sudden going from steady income to no income. But it was a gamble that they, they figured was the right one to take because they could see where the market was heading. And they were looking, they were sort of forecasting things that you guys do. They were trend forecasting as best they could. We're not always right. But oftentimes you can, as you know, you can predict elements of the future by looking at a variety of trends. Guy, I know you don't talk to a lot of people when they're not successful or haven't achieved success. So it's maybe uh, your sample is focused on people who have achieved success, but you see founders that go out and attempt something. Is there a trait that, that sets them up for failure more often than, than those that are that do achieve success? Is there something that there, is it, a, is it, I, I imagine everything can be overcome, but is there some sort of bias towards the chances of success are less because of something? You know, I, I think that, look, I think that the, the differentiator is getting into the arena, right? There's the famous quote by Teddy Roosevelt about, about the critic and the, and, and the man in the arena. And what I find really, really, important and consistent across the board is that 
the people I interview were prepared. They didn't like it, but they were prepared for failure. They were prepared for the possibility of failure. It doesn't mean that they handled it well. Nobody likes failure, especially when it's catastrophic, right? The, 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 the question is, how do you fail in a way that is not catastrophic? How do you give yourself permission to try something out and fail at it, even if you invested a few years into it and recover from it, right? And I think that's, that's, that's the, the critical difference. I mean, the, the, the reality is I talk to people, you know, all the time who try things and fail or who have tried things and fail. But I can't think of an example of somebody I've interviewed or met who tried something, failed, and the rest of their life just ended at that point, right? That, that it was just over. I've never encountered somebody who was committed to, to, to pursuing an idea who failed so bad that that was it. They just and their life was kind of over at that point. Because the reality is that people who keep trying and failing eventually will find a, a version of success in some way. And, and, and the reality is, you, as you know this from your own experience starting other startups, right, is that you kind of have to fail in order to understand how not to fail the next time. You know, there's a famous quote by Winston Churchill. I, I'm, I'm going to butcher it, but it's something like, you know, um, success is, is basically the culmination of a series of endless failures, right? And I think that's very true. I mean, it applies to me in my life, and I'm, I'm sure a version of that applies to you in your life and, and, and probably people watching, that we, you know, we have a, no, as I say, nobody likes to fail. It's not fun. And there, I think there is a bit of a fetishization of failure, certainly in the tech world, right? In part because a lot of those companies can afford to do it. But I also think that on a small scale, especially in the startup world, and when, you know, when we're talking about non-tech companies and you know, consumer products even, we all have to get more comfortable with failure. We have to get comfortable with failure because there is no, in my experience, there is not a single example of a business I've studied or a person I've interviewed who didn't fail along the way. So yes, the show is ultimately about a success, right? Because it's designed to, to kind of show people, here, here's what they did, but it's really a journey of failure along the way that results in a success. And that's, that's actually one of the things that I really try to lean in on it, because I want to underscore this idea that, that you know, the, this mythology of just fleeting from success to success is exactly that. It's mythology. I mean, if I said, hey, Craig, oh, Craig, I know Craig, his story is he just, he nailed it. He just knocked it out of the park. He was 22 and he, and he tried this and he knocked it out of the park and then he started his next business and just crushed it. And that's not your story, right? No, and it's, and it's a boring one if it was told. Right? Exactly. Nobody wants to hear that, that somebody had instant success and it was like, that's a really boring, exactly. uninspiring story. Unhelpful, that, unhelpful story. And it's uninteresting. It's yeah. like, okay, that, that really isn't that interesting at the end of the day. It, it strikes me though that, one of the things, and I talked to early founders that are earlier in their sort of journey, and one of the things that they are always worried about is the because now everything's so public, social media has made it so public, but they're worried about the public ridicule or failing in public. And that's the thing that oftentimes forces people to sort of slow down or not take the leap, is they're worried about not so much the, the monetary risks associated with it or the financial risk, but the, the ridicule of doing something. 
And I always remind them that nobody remembers the times you failed. They only remember the successes in, in time. That's what they actually recall. Oh, there's no question about it. I mean, think about, I mean, even, you know, I don't know, like uh, someone like Don Katz. I just interviewed Don Katz a couple of weeks ago and he, his, his story is incredible. I mean, he's he founded Audible, okay? He was 43 years old and he was taking a run in Central Park and he was, he was listening to a book on tape, a cassette tape, like literally back in the day. You, you remember this. You'd take a cassette and you'd flip it over and like that, that was his run. And it was 1995 and he knew that there was technology out there that could enable you to listen to a digital audio file. Um, and he thought, why, why isn't this available? Why aren't we listening to digital audio files? So he literally quit his job. He was a writer. He was a staff writer for, the, for Rolling Stone magazine, very successful. And he had kids and a mortgage and he, he quit his job and he gave up his career to pursue this crazy idea. He eventually was able to build an audible audio player and it was a, the company went public. He raised some money. They went public in 1999. It was a dot com darling. By 2001, the stock price for audible.com, for audible, their stock price was four cents. Four cents. They were, we were all, they, they, they were at one point, they were like $32. They were four cents. That company was on the ropes. Talk about ridicule. Talk about ridicule. Talk about somebody who, who people said, What did you do, Don? You gave up your whole career. To, to pursue this thing. Well, today, Audible is the biggest audiobook catalog in the world, 600,000 titles. It's a multi-billion dollar business. I mean, it took a while and he was definitely way too far ahead of the game because it would take another five years before people started to use it, right? People needed, the technology needed to be there. People needed to have high-speed internet. People needed, the iPod changed, changed the, the game for him because all of a sudden people got used to this idea that you could have a device and listen to something on this device. So all of these factors had to had to occur. But I mean, imagine the humiliation he felt. You know, when his stock is at four cents, he he convinced people to come work for him. I mean, he, he yeah, being public. I mean, all everybody knows. Everybody right? knows. And then, you, and then you have to have thick skin to put up that advice. There's a lot of glory in it if if it's if it you know goes well. But there's also a lot of downside. It's it is interesting. There was a quote a couple of years ago. I watched this video. It was a, a founder who had started a company uh, had, that had gone under. And he had a great quote. He said, when you're a founder of a company, when your company goes bankrupt, your ego goes bankrupt. Now, he went on to start another company that had tremendous success. Uh, it was uh, Lids, I think, is the is the company that does the hats. Wow. He had talked about this sort of journey of failure in public. He, the thing he had crashed in the dot-com days. One of my favorite episodes is Paul English, the founder of Kayak. And he talks about how, as a founder, he would have the success. He would sit, you know, he would jump from thing to thing to thing. Bipolar sort of manic episodes sort of drive to success and then get bored of it and want to move on to something else. I think that's something that uh, I suffer as well is like once you achieve a level of success, it's like this is no longer interesting. It's not the journey of sort of the high of putting them together. Is that a common yes. theme that you find among founders? Yeah, I think that 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 many, many of the founders, and, and I, I, I count myself among among that, we, we probably have some diagnosed and some undiagnosed version of ADHD. Um, I think that's very real. Um, I, I think that, and, and that has to do with this restlessness, right? And, and I don't think it's a requirement 
to be a founder, an entrepreneur at all. I think many entrepreneurs and founders don't have this, but there is an element of restlessness and kind of um, this this kind of intrinsic um, feeling that after a certain time and after you achieve a certain thing, you just have to create something new. It's just, it, and Paul English is a great example of this because Paul English is a, a billionaire, multi-billionaire. And um, by the age of 25, he was already worth, you know, 25 or $30 million. I mean, he could have uh, kicked up his feet and, and drank pina coladas for the rest of his life, right? He would have been fine. But none of that matters. I mean, he's giving away most of his money. What's he going to do with a billion dollars? Uh, one human can't, 10 generations can't spend a billion dollars. So he, he's giving most of that away anyway. What motivates him is this desire to create. You know, I got an email from him just the other day. I don't think he'd mind if I shared it, but he, you know, he was like, oh, I've got, he, he, one of his passion projects is a Chinese chess website uh, that, uh, that he's built, you know, um, and he's like, I have a friend who's making this cool chess website. You got to meet him. And, and he's just he's constantly on the move. You know, he's constantly coming up with new ideas. He's constantly pursuing different things because that's who he is. It's not about the money. It's not about the glory or the fame or any of that. It's just it's about needing to fulfill something inside of him. And that is the desire to create. And that's a really powerful you know, a powerful trait. And, and I think, as, as, you, as you say, I think a lot of people in this space do share that trait. So what, when does a founder know that it's time for them to step down or sell the business or exit or bring in someone else to run it and they go do something else? When do they know that this is the time for them? When they wake up in the morning and it's not the thing that they want to do. Right when they're, when they're no longer inspired by the opportunity, they to- they might be inspired by certain things, but they might have lost some of it. You know, I, I I think that what's what's really interesting is I found that when I when I've 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 had founders on the show who have sold their businesses, right, and in most cases it was the right decision. Sometimes it was very hard, and they regret it, and they regret it not because, you know. I don't know, because of the money or what it's, they regret it because they don't have a, they, they feel like they've lost a purpose, you know, running a business or being part of a team, going somewhere, showing up, interacting, exchanging ideas, um, hearing other people's ideas, this feedback, we grow, we become smarter, we ask questions, we read, we learn. It's, it's an intellectual pursuit, even though we're not thinking about it that way, starting a business, running a business, gathering ideas, getting feedback, hearing criticism, um, which is hard. Those all make us grow. And I think that the minute you feel like you're not growing anymore is the minute to move on, the minute to pass over the, the reins and to, to pursue something else. It's a really interesting time in entrepreneurship. It is. Um, I, I have to ask, though, this whole conversation around entrepreneurship and people uh, – questioning wealth building wealth is a byproduct of success yeah do, do you think that's something terminal or something that's perpetual is going to continue through the end of time or do you think that this is a cyclical uh, challenge the conversation around wealth wealth building yeah just the, the, the judgment people have that in terms of the byproduct of yeah i mean it's 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 a tricky it's a tricky time because we're living at a time where 
you know, there's a vast gap between um, the wealthiest and, and the least wealthy. And I think what's been interesting is that, you know, look, in the early 80s, and Paul Graham has written about this, in the early 80s, um, people, the, the way people made money, if they had a lot of money, was either through inheritance or through, um, you know, from, from the finance world, right? Today, the, 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 the wealthiest people have made their money from starting businesses. It's a completely different model. That was not a model 40 years ago. 30 years ago. Today, it is a model. It is a, it is the greatest model for wealth creation. Now, and it doesn't even have to be Tesla. It can be a plumbing business in Omaha that can create a lot of wealth for somebody, right? Entrepreneurship is, is, it's interesting because in some ways there are fewer entrepreneurs today than there were in 1980, but, but we're back on track in, in terms of growth. In fact, during the pandemic, there were a record number of applications for EINs, which is the, the sort of the first step you have to take to start a business. Now, whether that's a Shopify store or an Etsy shop, you know, or, you know, or a, a logistics company, um, it doesn't matter. The point is, is that lots of people understand that this is a path to a sustainable and, and maybe even a, 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 you know, a financially, you know, uh, um, secure life. Um, you know, look, we have many challenges in the United States. Um, and and many of those challenges can only be solved with money. You know, I I, I think about the incredible um, infrastructure that was built in the United States in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s. I mean, you know, I drive across the the Bay Bridge here in the, in the San Francisco Bay Area all the time, and it's a beautiful bridge, or the Golden Gate Bridge, or in in New York the Brooklyn Bridge, where you are the Tennessee Valley Authority. I mean, these incredible infrastructure projects that were done um, by Americans with um, with money from the U.S. government. Today, that infrastructure is crumbling and we have to rebuild it. And so the question is, how are we going to do it? And, and you know, look, the reality is we're all going to have to pay for it, including the wealthiest among us. Um, to me, being successful and, and, and building wealth is, is not a, a badge of shame. It's just, people should feel very proud of their success. But I also think that as we talk about wealth and, and wealth generation, we also have to talk about how we can take some of that wealth and plow, plow it back into our country to create even more opportunities for more people. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, TVA, as you, as you alluded to or, or mentioned, was a New Deal project by FDR. And this was largely a backwater of right. the, the country, right. an undeveloped area. And now it's if you look at the South is a renaissance of economic totally. viability that's really contributed through electrification has really enabled that to happen. So uh, that is a new deal project. The infrastructure bill is something our industry is thinking a lot about because uh, it is both impacted by it in terms of labor costs, but also is a key recipient of quality infrastructure with highways and ports. And, and that, so. and that, by the way, that project, like when we talk about, you know, a, a future world that's electrified, which is going to be good for everybody. I mean, it's going to be faster, more reliable, you know, electric cars, electric homes, electric heating. We know that's, that's where we have to go as a planet. It's better for the planet. It's going to create a lot of jobs and a lot of wealth, but to get there, we have to upgrade the entire, uh, you know, infrastructure in the United States to, to allow the, the demand to meet the, su the supply to meet the demand. And without those upgrades, we can't do it. Yeah, Guy, a mutual uh, relationship that we have, Steve Case, uh, who's an investor in Freightways, and I know you've uh, spent some time sure. with, with Steve Case. You know, he invested in Chattanooga because of the 
infrastructure that was here, the connection to logistics, but also because Chattanooga took public money and created the world's fastest internet back in 2010. Right. It is an infrastructure yes. Uh, yes. development yes. and has brought major economic activity and Chattanooga has been a renaissance city. So yeah. I think people often look at infrastructure jobs as a lot of spending, a lot of pork, but they don't realize the byproduct of that that creates economic development that may take decades, yeah. but cities benefit from it. So totally. hopefully hopefully, uh, folks in Washington will figure that out. But we, we unfortunately are out of time to help solve any more of those conversations. Guy, I really appreciate you being here today uh, and being a part of this event. Thanks, Craig. Thanks for having me.